Before we get into this morning's message, I wanted to just do a quick follow-up uh, to something I mentioned last week during the message, and a couple people have asked me about. Um, in the middle of the message last week, I uh, let us know that we are going to be formalizing membership here at Mercy Hill Church, that it's just taken us 15 years to figure it out. And uh, so we are going to be doing that. Several people asked afterwards like how they can do that. Um, starting um, the next trimester, it's starting in, I think, two weeks on Wednesday night for the family night, I will be um, uh, giving the, our membership class um, on, on that Wednesday night for family night. So we would ask you to be a part of that. If for some reason you're not able to be a part of the Wednesday night class, um, we will be videoing it and it will be available online. And so everybody who's going to be a member here is going to have the opportunity to go through that class either live or um, through video. So I know several people have asked that. And so I just wanted to start this morning by, by letting you guys know that that is the opportunity that you have to kind of come into, come into relationship, come into fellowship, come into accountability as we talked about last week as the body of Christ. Because as we've been going through this series, there's something very important about us taking serious our place in the church. That throughout the passages we've read, we've discovered that there is an inner, there, there's an interwoven, interconnected community that God calls us to if we're gonna live out what his word says. As we continue our series this morning, The Bride, I want to remind us that, that it's based on the incredibly beautiful imagery of the church and its intimate and unfolding relationship with the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. We see this image expressed by Paul in 2 Corinthians when he writes to the church, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Paul in this is is he's, he's, he's making a defense to his church. He's saying, listen, man, I have been preparing you for the bridegroom. I have been preparing you to present you to him. And, and that analogy is picked up in Revelation as it presents our ultimate, our ultimate destiny as the body of Christ, as believers, when the hosts of heaven declare, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The bride has made herself ready. And in so is fulfilling her betrothal to her bridegroom at the marriage supper of the lamb. The bride has made herself ready. Both 2 Corinthians and Revelation declares the responsibility for the bride to be prepared. In 2 Corinthians 11, as I said, Paul is worried that, that deception and false doctrine has made its way in to corrupt the church. And so he expresses his concern because his goal is pastoring the church and bringing her, bringing the bride to purity, being prepared for Christ. Revelation 11 declares with that voice of the multitude of heaven, hallelujah for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. What are they rejoicing in? That the bride has made herself ready to be united to the bridegroom. And that's really what we are here to do. That's what we are here to do as a church, to prepare the bride for the bridegroom. 
We believe the charge for the leadership of any church, the pastors and the elders. We believe that the charge for us as members of the church is the preparation of the bride, is the washing and the cleansing and the purification and the sanctification, as it states in Ephesians 5, of the bride for the bridegroom. And it's with that goal in mind that we do everything that we do. The goal here is to create a church that brings about a bride pure and holy, spotless and unblemished. All the instruction in God's word is really to that end. As we read the epistles, it is about us as the church, us as the bride, being prepared for our bridegroom. When you dive into the book of Ephesians, all throughout it is instruction in the purification of the church. It calls the church to accountability and community and unity through humility, to ministry and service to the church and generosity. All of this is for the preparation, for the purifying of the church for Jesus Christ. First week of our series, we found the starting point of all preparation is discovered in fidelity to Scripture. Paul, using the analogy of the bride and bridegroom, states in Ephesians chapter 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That the sanctification of the church comes by being bathed in the word of God. At the core, at the center of what we want to do as a church is we want to consistently bring to you and bring to bear on your life the word of God because opinion or idea or manly wisdom isn't what prepares the bride. It's the word of God. That's why if you come here on a Sunday morning, you're going to hear lots of scripture verses. And that's why we're going to encourage you, be in the word, because it is the word that will prepare us. I've said the last couple of weeks that where, where we compromise the word, where we, where, where we, um, where, where we twist the word, where we, where we are um, dismissive of the word of God, the bride is defiled. And so it's important for us to stay true to that. And it's important for you to be willing to stay true to that. And I say it's important for you to be willing to stay true to that because as we discovered last week, there's a lot of difficult things the word of God asks of us. It, 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 it at times confronts us in ways that are uncomfortable. The word of God requires us to be in a community where we are so deeply known and we, are, and we so deeply know others that we have to shun an anonymity for accountability. For a lot of us, we don't like that idea. A lot of us back away from accountability. And what we see in Scripture is that over and over and over throughout, there are are times of uncomfortable exchanges that are required for us to grow in community. That the type of relationships that the Bible requires of us and the types of exchanges that the Bible requires of us are not what we do very often in modern American churches. Things like encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. 
Every declaration here, every instruction here requires us to humble ourselves in a way in which we engage with people and help people and encourage people and submit to people. Or as it says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as, th- as those who will give an account. At the center, one of the reasons why we formalize membership is, is this passage. Because what it tells me is you have a responsibility to the eldership and the eldership has a responsibility for you. That one day, me as pastor is going to give an account for the way in which I've pastored you. And it's important for us to know each other and know who is in this relationship so that this exchange can take place. But lots of people would rather be in anonymity than accountability. And that's what the Word of God calls us away from. In fact, there's a passage in Ephesians 4 that we read last week that I think creates a profound challenge to the posture that many of us have within the church towards each other. I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, Paul writes, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. As we said last week, when you read this, we clearly see a rejection of the anonymity model so common in the American church in favor of true community. There is an interconnectedness that is required to fulfill the simple value of loving each other. And as we said last week, the value means loving over leaving. We are called to stick in it with each other. That even when this exchange of accountability takes place, that we don't shun one another. That we push in towards one another and we, and, and, and we engage with one another and we call each other out and we encourage one another. And we say, this is sin, this is wrong, this you got to change. We want you to grow. That we don't run from each other. Loving one another means we don't leave when things get difficult. But as I said last week, it's not just in that. We choose loving over leaving. We choose to love people over leaving them where they are. We have this idea in our culture that love means accepting people where they are. And that's only half right. You accept people where they are, but love requires you to call them to a higher standard to call them to grow, to call them to move forward and become exactly what it is God calls them to be. We we are called to an exchange and relationship in the community of Christ that is profound. And it requires a good deal from us. This is the point. It is the preparation of the bride. As we've been saying that to this point, the preparation of the bride requires fidelity to the word and accountability in community. But the passage I just read gives us an important hint at the next value we have to have, that we have to hang on to, that we have to maintain as the church. Look again at what we just read. I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager 
to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I want you to see where this whole encouragement leads. To walk worthy of our calling requires humility. That's what it says, right? I want you to keep that in mind. It requires humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. For what reason? To maintain unity. Because there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father over the body, over that one family, over that one bride. See, it says all of this is leaning towards what? To maintain unity. One of, the, one of the centerpieces of the church's calling is to maintain unity. At the core of the bride's preparation is to protect and preserve unity. And what it spells out to us here is through humility. That in humility, in gentleness, in kindness, we work to maintain the unity of the body of Christ. Humility is a rare commodity in our culture. And as a result, it is a rare commodity in our churches. Understand what I'm saying to you. We are called to not give in to the impulse to part fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ out of conflict. The hard work of reconciliation is required to bring about unity. And we talked a little about this last week. But what we see in Scripture is a model in how to achieve that. We talked a little bit last week about the importance of loving and staying together and staying one with another. But what I want you to understand today is that the way in which we preserve unity is spelled out in Scripture for us. And it starts with this beautiful idea that our culture, that our society, that many of us reject. And it's called humility. We don't walk away out of offense. We don't walk away out of frustration. We don't walk away because our feelings are hurt. And the only way that that happens is if we embrace an uncommon and uncomfortable humility. Look, look from where that calling comes. If you have your Bibles open to Philippians chapter 2, and it spells out for us where our call to humility originates. So, Paul writes, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Now, I want you to hear what he's saying here. Essentially, it, essentially what he's saying is, if you're anything like a Christian, right? I mean, if he's looking at this and he's saying, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if you're encouraged at all by Christ in your life, if there's any comfort in the fact that he loves you, if there's any participation in the Spirit, as believers, we're all participants in the Spirit, right? Because the Spirit enters us as we accept him. Any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. If there's any Christianity in you at all, be of one mind. 
do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was the form of God, did not count equality with God to be a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. What Paul starts us with is a call that says, as Christians who come to a place in which they say, I have the spirit of God in me. I am comforted by the love of Christ that I feel. I have a joy that comes from from Jesus. He says, if you enjoy that, if that is a part of your identity, if that is who you are, then finish that. Complete my joy by having in you the same mind that Jesus Christ had, which was to humble himself for others. Paul holds out Jesus Christ's act of humility as the pattern to which we are to follow specifically in community one with another. He humbled himself for you, so humble yourselves for others, for others in the body, for others who are part of the bride. There are a lot of passages in Scripture that provide room for interpretation and and varied application. But how do we read this passage and still allow petty disagreements to separate us? Consider the last half of verse 3. In humility, count others more significant than you. As you read that, Are any of you confused? Is there anything there that kind of clouds your understanding of that idea? Consider others more significant than you. Now, the declaration here is not. He's not saying here that they are. They're saying you should consider them that way. That you should come into contact with believers in Christ and go, listen, when there is conflict, when there is an issue to take, I, I want to submit in relationship. That's what, it's, that's what he says in, in Ephesians 5. He said, submit one to another. He wants you to come and go, listen, I care about your needs being met. The passage calls us to voluntarily subjugate ourselves to the needs of others. It's not saying others are better than you. But it is saying that the posture we take in the time of conflict is that our brother or sister is to be honored above ourselves. That our heart is to meet the needs of our brothers and sisters. This is a practice that is so foreign in our American culture that it is no wonder it is foreign in our American churches. We are a people more primed to fight for our democratic principles, to shout and scream to receive our civil rights, to stand and resist any hint of inequality than to voluntarily submit to one another, considering others better than ourselves. This is not only difficult, and this is where I say the word of God calls us, our our fidelity to the word of God 
calls us to difficult things on occasion. And this is difficult. But it also grates against our basic nature. We struggle to meet others' needs above our own. It is our impulse for survival. And because this is true, we do not see the principle of deference consistently practiced in our churches. We have, con- we, have, we have fashioned congregations that incorporate the principles of American democracy and individual rights because we are so conditioned to these in our individualistic society. We have a sloppy understanding of the concept of humility, and then we wonder why our spiritual communities do not function as prescribed in Scripture. We wonder why simple events pull us apart. The epidemic of division in the body is a direct unwillingness to take biblical instruction and raise it above our cultural taboos. It is manifested because the humility of personal sacrifice is in direct conflict with the virtue of personal rights. And this is a problem that's not manifested simply in silly arguments. I've seen churches pulled apart by the dumbest things. Literally the color of grout and tile. Ask me about that story sometime. It is a problem that prevents us from practicing the most basic expectation of the Christian walk that promotes unity. The ability to forgive. As a pastor, you tend to get brought into all sorts of conflicts between members of your church. There are conflicts that arise from money or communication or relationships. But when a group of people are called to live in community, inevitably, there are bumps in the road. And in my, in, in, in my history, in my experience, most often they are, they are the small and petty variety. Well, on, on occasion, they can be more significant. And early on in my ministry, I was very willing to kind of wander into each and every one of these conflicts, um, believing that, that was really central to part of my, my job. And, and honestly, if, I, if I'm being truly honest with you, I probably enjoyed it. I kind of enjoyed the idea that people were coming to me and asking for my wisdom and asking for me to kind of mediate what was going on. It kind of made me feel a bit like King Solomon. (laughs) Over the years, though, I've come to realize that the best and healthiest answer to these conflicts is not my wise counsel, but the direct and often blunt application of the gospel. These days, my interaction with an individual that approaches me with a conflict with a brother or sister in Christ will go something like this. Pastor, I have an issue with Steve. He needed some money, and so I helped him out, and now he doesn't seem willing to pay me back. I never meant for it to be, simply be a gift, and I, I always thought that when he got on his feet, he would repay me. Well, he hasn't. And in fact, it seems now that he's going around bad-mouthing me to others. I'm not sure I can stay in a community with him. I'm not sure I can go to church with him. I'm uncomfortable sitting in church worshiping next to him. 
And it's not even about the money anymore, you know? I feel like he's, he's been dis, I've been disrespected. It, it really hurts. And I don't feel like I deserve to be treated that way. Now, in the past, what I probably would have done is I probably would have gotten, gotten uh, Steve in the room with the same individual and said, hey, let's talk through this. Let me hear your side of things. Let's, let's work through this. What can we do to get you to stay in community? And sometimes this would be successful. But generally it would result in, in a temporary truce causing me to revisit this relationship over and over and over again until ultimately one of them says, I'm leaving. And so in the end, it just never really accomplished much. Sometimes sitting down together and working through things from a, from a humble position can make a difference. But since most of us don't come to those conversations with humility, they end up um, resulting in a fracture anyways. Now my response goes something like this. I'm really sorry this had to happen to you. I'm sure your initial intention was with a pure heart and I, and I know it hurts to be disrespected when you're just trying to do something nice for people. But you know what else probably hurt? When Jesus got beaten with cat of nine tails. I bet it hurt a lot when they punched him in the face and drove thorns into his brow. I bet when they nailed his hands and feet to the cross, it was excruciatingly painful. And all of this was happening just because he was trying to do something nice for not just them, but for you. Not only was it their sin that punished Christ so deeply, but your sin too. And yet in spite of all of this, he forgave them and he forgave you. Do you think you could maybe forgive your brother? You're right when you say you didn't deserve the way you were treated. You actually deserve hell. But thankfully, God's grace was extended towards you and you now have salvation. Do you think you could extend grace to your brother? As harsh as this sounds, it points to the cross as the, core, as, the, as the source of our calling. It calls us to a unity that is rooted in that very truth. Philippians 2 says that we are to look to the cross, the sacrifice and the suffering that Jesus endured for us so that we might humble ourselves and forgive others. In fact, I believe that the declaration I made here matches the directness of Jesus' admonition when he said, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither Will the Father forgive you? That seems harsh, but it's Jesus' words. There's not much wiggle room, I think, in his declaration. In fact, have you ever noticed the end of Christ's parable about the unforgiving servant? He tells the story of a servant who was forgiven this great debt by the king. 
And after having his great debt forgiven by the master, the servant goes out and shakes down a fellow servant who owed him very little. According to Jesus, this is how the master responds when he hears of the servant's unforgiving spirit. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Did you hear that? Jesus Christ uses an analogy here in which, in which the one servant is unwilling to forgive the other servant, and he said what the master did was throw him in jail to be tortured. And you know what Jesus says next? He then states, this is how the father will treat anyone who does not forgive his brother. Now let me ask you something. Has anything I said that I say to people more harsh than that? So also, he says, my heavenly father will do this to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. What causes us to declare our rights and appeal to our mistreatment in the midst of conflict with brothers and sisters in Christ? I think it is born of our humanity and re- that is refined in our selfish culture. We are such a self-serving, consumeristic, personal rights defending society that we cannot exemplify the most base element of Christ's gospel story. We create division and dissension. We turn our backs on community and relationship, not because of deep heretical error, but because of petty personal offenses that will only be undone when the humility of Christ is manifested in our lives. The simple instruction to the church is this. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. I find it interesting that when he he crosses the question of when, when there is a complaint, when there is a conflict, that the answer here isn't some sit down. He simply says, Forgive one another. And I want you to hear this because it is the key. For some reason, we forget that forgiveness requires an offense. Think about that. Forgiveness requires an offense. But they did that to me. Yes. That's why you have to forgive them. If they didn't do anything to you, there'd be nothing to forgive. Forgiveness requires an offense. And mercy is necessitated by undeservedness. God's mercy was poured out on you not because you were merciful, or not because you were deserving, but because he was merciful. Mercy comes 
not because you've earned it. If someone never wrongs us, then we have no reason to forgive. And if someone is worthy of forgiveness, we are not really extending mercy. We are to be agents of God's grace, one to another, and our own selfish existence, reinforced by our selfish culture, is preventing the church from being the church to whom Christ gave birth with his unjust death. It is is preventing the preparation of the bride. And the call today is unity through humility. There's an interesting thing that took place even this morning. Remember our congregation who God uses in in the gift of the prophetic in our church came up to me beforehand and said, hey, I wanted to share with you something that the Lord gave me for you yesterday. <clears throat> and she said, she said, from the very start of me coming to this church, God gave me an image, a picture of our church that the roof was going to blow off like just in flames and that God was going to do incredible things in this church. And throughout this week, God's been telling me something. And she said, he wanted me to tell you that the thing that is getting in the way most in this church is the petty differences, is the petty offenses. And that for us to be a church in which people could be welcomed in, we have to set aside those things and be united as the body of Christ. Now she didn't know what I was preaching on this morning, so I told her, stay tuned. (laughs) Unity comes from humility exposed by the cross. Unity comes when we ourselves see see us standing before the cross, broken and needy spiritual beggars who have been given life, not by our own value, but by the grace of God embodied in Christ's sacrifice. The bride will be prepared when we follow the example of Christ in humility and preserve unity. We are one body. We are one bride under one Heavenly Father, attached, betrothed to one bridegroom. Here's how Ephesians chapter 4 ends. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is our challenge. If you are here today and there's anger or bitterness or malice, if there is dissension between you and a brother in Christ, I'm asking you today to open your hearts to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and make things right. Jesus Christ wants a unified bride, and that is our calling. And it will only happen when we humble ourselves, first before the cross, and then before each other.